chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Acts together and come to Acts chapter 22, actually a little bit into chapter 21. If you're with us today and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and you wave to them and they'll put one in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from us to you uh, today. While we're finding our place there, I want to give you one announcement related to the upcoming Israel trip in uh, just about 11 months away, uh, April 23rd to May 6th of 2018. It's a joint trip with uh, Calvary Chapel of Oakdale. The uh, response to the trip has been very, very strong. Uh, we're, we're over, a, one bus is full and the other bus is probably a quarter to a third full and we're gonna limit uh, it limited to two buses. So if you are uh, interested in coming on the trip and maybe kind of putting off uh, jumping in, uh, I just want to give you that information that might be, uh, might be wise to do it sooner <clears throat> uh, rather than later. Flyers for the trip are available out in the fellowship hall uh, with all the details, and then you register online at the internet, uh, internet address that's on the brochure. Looking forward to a great trip next year. Uh, to Israel. This morning, we'll pick things up in chapter 21, verse 1. Actually, we'll be studying from chapter 21, verse 27, uh, but we'll just kind of give you the narration of that as we are, are in the study. Paul is speaking, and he is speaking to really a religious mob of Jews in Jerusalem that he loves very much, and he declares to them, brethren and uh, fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he had spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. And then he said, I, indeed, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, that is Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our fathers, uh, the, our father's law, and was zealous toward God, just as you are today. I persecuted this way, speaking of Christianity, to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness and all the counsel of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those Christians who were there back to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light but were, and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. And so I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. And then a certain Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony and all the Jews, with all the Jews who were there, came to me. And he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. And then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord." Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance, and I saw him, that is Jesus, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. And so I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And then he said to me, Paul declared, depart for I will send you far from here 
to the Gentiles. And a complete riot erupts at that particular point, and the crowd begins to call for uh, Paul's death. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this passage. And your word is wonderful how it is united in, around one theme of our salvation and thus around the person of Jesus Christ from one end of the book uh, to the other. The volume of the book testifies of him. And yet here it is filled with such diversity that speaks to the large and small uh, parts of our relationship with you and this Christian walk and we love the diversity of your word and we pray that the purposes and the intent of your heart behind including this particular event in Paul's life and the record of scripture that you would bring that out to each one of us this morning by the very present uh, person of your Holy Spirit and we ask it of you Father in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We remember that the Apostle Paul returned to the city of, uh, came to the city of Jerusalem following his third missionary uh, journey. He had come uh, back to Jerusalem despite the warnings of the Holy Spirit declaring to him that tremendous tribulation and even imprisonment would wait, await him if he came. It wasn't that the Holy Spirit was telling him that he couldn't come to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit was merely warning them that when he did, he would uh, not be warmly greeted by and large, but that he would be uh, heavily persecuted and ultimately be uh, uh, imprisoned. And Paul, when he came back to Jerusalem, you might say, why in the world would he go back? I mean, he knows these kind of things are potentially going to happen to him, but he came back to Jerusalem for three main reasons. And the first reason was simply to celebrate the Jewish feast of Pentecost there in Jerusalem. He had been raised around these Jewish feasts. They all spoke of Christ to him, and he wanted to enjoy that privilege uh, once again in Jerusalem. He was also bringing a gift, you might remember, from the Gentile churches that he had established in other parts of the Roman Empire to bring that material gift, financial gift, back to the uh, largely Jewish church in Jerusalem as an encouragement and an expression of love and unity within the body of Christ between the Jews and the Gentiles. A third reason that he had come to Jerusalem was that, the, that Paul was operating under this uh, conviction that if only he could have just one opportunity to preach to these religious Jews, him having uh, earlier in his life excelled to the heights of that Jewish religious establishment, that if he could just have one opportunity to preach to them his reason for believing in Jesus as the promised Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world, that somehow the light would go on for them. They would become followers of Jesus in the same way that he had. Now, upon his arrival in Jerusalem, you might remember that James, the half-brother of Jesus, met with him and said, listen, there's some rumors floating around in Jerusalem related to you and, uh, you know, how kosher you are these days and how uh, for the law of Moses you are and the Jewish people in the temple in Jerusalem and these things are floating around and we've got four young men who have taken a Nazarite vow and would be, you be willing as a show of your Jewishness and a show of your, uh, that you are not antagonistic toward these things related to Jewish heritage would you be willing to pick up the price for the sacrifices that are associated with that Nazarite vow? And Paul, very much in the interest of uh, having uh, peace and establishing a peaceful relationship with, uh, with the Jews there in Jerusalem, he agreed to uh, sponsor those four in their Nazarite vow and and it, all of this, of course, was consistent with his policy 
as he declared to the church at Corinth, of becoming all things to all men in order that he might uh, save some. Now, seven days into this entire thing, while Paul is worshiping God at the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, there were certain Jews that came from Asia uh, to the area of the temple, and they spotted him there. And they, uh, to a man, proceeded to rush Paul, uh, lay hands on him in a non-Pentecostal way, and they began to drag him around the area of of the temple. They took hold on him, they arrested him, and they cried out to all of the other Jews that were at the temple uh, that here is this Paul, that Paul was teaching everywhere against the people, that is against the Jewish people, He's teaching against the law of Moses. He was teaching against this place, that is Jerusalem and uh, the temple. And then they further accused Paul before this religious crowd that Paul had brought a Gentile into the interior courtyards of the temple where no Gentile uh, was allowed, and that in doing so, in defiance of Jewish heritage and Jewish tradition, that he had defiled the temple as a result. They built this accusation against Paul in terms of bringing a Gentile into the grounds of the temple uh, because out of a, a kind of something that worked out in their mind, they saw Paul apparently earlier Uh, making his way around Jerusalem, and he had a gentleman by the name of Trophimus, a a companion who was with him, who was a Gentile from the city of Ephesus. He had come with Paul uh, to Jerusalem in order to deliver that gift, and they assumed, they didn't know for a fact, but they assumed that because uh, they'd heard these rumors and because of uh, Paul walking with them around the city, that Paul then brought Trophimus onto uh, the Temple Mount area and the inner courtyards of, of the temple. These Jews that made this accusation, they were from the Roman province of Asia. When it talks about Asia, don't think about the Orient. There was a section of the Roman Empire called Asia that was made up of Western Turkey. This is where they were uh, from. It isn't unlikely that they were from the, actually from the city of Ephesus or one of the surrounding uh, regions and that they were very, very familiar with Paul's three-year ministry in the city of Ephesus that he had just concluded in establishing that very significant and influential church there uh, in that city. And they had probably spent some significant effort in opposing him, as he was opposed everywhere he went, opposing him in establishing churches uh, based upon the Old Testament and the faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And But they were unable to kind of successfully and completely stomp out what Paul was doing because that Paul was ministering in Gentile lands. Remember now, at the feast of the, at the time of the feast of Pentecost, along with the feast of of Passover and the third feast of Tabernacles. These were the three great uh, Jewish feasts of the Jewish religious calendar. And the city of Jerusalem would essentially explode to a two million person population during these feasts because it was mandated within the law that all Jews were to come to Jerusalem in order to worship the Lord. All Jewish men were to come to Jerusalem in order to worship the Lord on those three feasts. So Jerusalem became many times its normal size at the time of these feasts. And these men were in Jerusalem essentially because they had traveled from Turkey or from uh, Asia Minor there in the Roman Empire to now come and conduct the the pilgrimage in coming to uh, Jerusalem. The accusation concerning uh, Trophimus is a complete lie. Paul did not. He would not. It's inconceivable in in his mind and us thinking about him. He'd never bring a Gentile into the section of the temple grounds that was reserved for Jews alone. But the lie, as so many do, even among religious people, it got traction and and, and there were plenty of people that wanted uh, to believe the lie. They were eager to believe the lie 
And so this begins to explode. And it explodes not only in the region of the temple, but word of all of this then goes beyond the temple into Jerusalem uh, itself. And the result is, we're told, uh, that a riot, verses 30 through 36 of chapter 21, uh, broke out. And as that riot then begins to spread on the Temple Mount area and then begins to spread uh, into the city uh, itself, the, uh, religi- the uh, uh, secular officials, the military officials of the Roman Empire uh, became aware of it. So here you have this mob, and there is no mob that is more dangerous than a religious mob, it seems today, and, and it has been historically true concerning, uh, concerning mobs. Uh, groups of people who are misguided or wrong, but they believe that God is on their side, this is the worst group of people to have arrest you and then uh, begin to uh, beat you up. And so here they are. They dragged Paul, seized Paul, we're told. They dragged him. Yes, they dragged him. I don't know the last time you've had a mob drag you, but put yourself in Paul's shoes. This is a very dangerous situation that he's in the middle of. They probably dragged him from the immediate area before the Jewish temple out into the court of the Gentiles where they then proceeded to beat him. And they had every intention of beating him to death. I don't know if you've ever seen anyone beaten to death, but if you had a video of Paul at this particular point in time and somebody was filming it on their iPhone 2,000 years ago uh, without some kind of intervention by the military, they would have beat him with their hands uh, to death on the scene. Well, while Paul was being uh, beaten to death, the commander of the garrison of what is the Antonia Fortress that is uh, uh, to this day abuts the Temple Mount, the temple area, or where the temple would be in Jerusalem, he becomes aware that there's a problem uh, in the area of the Jewish temple. And Rome was always concerned about this, especially at the times of the Jewish feasts when you had so many people from all around the world that somebody would get in a fight, there would be some kind of an argument, some kind of a disagreement between the liberal and the conservative Jews, or something would happen, and some uh, fuss would break out there, and then it would begin to escalate and expand in the area of the temple, forcing the Roman soldiers to then now come into the area of the temple wherever they, they could, and then uh, begin to kind of calm the situation, but if they used excessive force, then everybody would forget what was the first issue that was being dealt with and then now cry kind of bloody murder against uh, the Romans mistreating us, and then you have some kind of a small fight that occurs there in that religious environment, and then it spreads and becomes a revolt of the entire nation against the Roman Empire. And so at these times, Rome would put a thousand uh, top-flight military in the Antonia Fortress there in Jerusalem, just in case such a thing happened. They were soldiers from the Roman 10th Legion. The Roman 10th Legion was one of the most battle-seasoned sections of the Roman military, which gave you an idea of how hostile and difficult they considered Palestine or Israel to be to rule over. And so here is this uh, breakout that's, that's going on. The, the commander gets informed uh, of the riot. This is the very thing they don't want to see happening and alarmed related to all of it. Notice in verse 32, we're told that the commander took multiple centurions and then the soldiers associated with them now into the mob in order to restore order. A Roman centurion was an officer over a hundred Roman soldiers. So this commander calls for at least two centurions and at least two uh, hundred Roman soldiers to now uh, go into the mob with him in an attempt to restore uh, the order there and bring everything into control. And so you can see them just literally with the shields, with their weaponry, wading into this mess to try and uh, bring some calm to all of it. Apparently, the appearance of the Romans caused the uh, crowd to cease their attack upon Paul 
and they allowed the commander then to rescue Paul uh, and, and take him into custody, really in the nick of time, because without this intervention, Paul's life ends here in uh, Acts chapter 21. They would have beaten him to death without this intervention. And the commander then, verses 33 and 34, asked the mob who Paul was and what's this fight all about? Somebody shouted one thing, somebody shouted something else, and another shouted uh, something else. And nobody really knew what the cause of it was except for a very few people. It's kind of like how uh, mobs do develop. It begins over this false accusation that uh, happens here. People grab Paul, the accusation's being made, but then the people start to run to this great fight that's going on. And what's going on here? Oh, I don't know. All I know is that Joe's hitting that guy, and I know Joe's a good guy, and he loves the Lord, and he's a scholar of the Torah. And I know Alex, and he's doing the same thing. It's all I need to know. I don't need to know what the story is. I know good, righteous men are doing something here, and it must be because this person's done something wrong. And so most of the crowd has no idea what in the world is precipitated the, the entire thing. And so, unable to get the truth concerning any of this, uh, the commander then had Paul removed to the fortress where he could kind of discover the facts and uh, an environment that was a little less uh, volatile. But Paul, as he's being led from that area of the temple uh, into the Antonia fortress, it seems as if something dawns on him at that moment. And what dawns upon him is he is about to lose the opportunity to accomplish his dream, that opportunity to speak to the people, the religious establishment of uh, Jesus in that city. He senses that that opportunity's quickly slipping away and it's going to be lost forever. And so Paul then requested the opportunity, verses 37 through 39, of the commander, the opportunity to speak to the people of the mob that had assembled. Now, Paul's quite a bit braver than I would be. I would just look at, I'd just feel what was broken, what wasn't broken, and can, what I can I still see out of, and so forth. And it would be like uh, soldier, speak to the soldiers, never have I been more happy to see a military force in my whole life. Get me up into your fortress, and I want to get the quickest flight out of Jerusalem, please. But the Apostle Paul doesn't do that uh, and, and uh, doesn't dismiss the crowd with good riddance to all of them. I tried, forget about it. Paul, the, uh, the garrison commander, when Paul speaks to him with this request, he's uh, surprised to hear Paul speak to him in Greek. That was the language of education. That was the language of culture. This man, when he arrested Paul, he thought Paul was an Egyptian insurrectionist in, within the city. And so Paul then informed uh, the man that he was not an Egyptian, but rather that he was a Jew from a very significant city by the name of Tarsus of Cilicia in the Roman Empire. Tarsus was an educational center, a cultural center for uh, Greek culture. It, was, it wasn't Athens that that was centered in. That was centered in Tarsus, where Paul came from, and there was a very large Jewish population uh, there. And when Paul informs him that he's a Jew from that city, basically what he's telling the commander is this, is that I am not a Gentile in a portion of the temple that is reserved for the Jews alone, causing that kind of a problem. I am a Jew from a significant city, and as a Jew, I had every right to be in exactly the place uh, that you found me. I gave no cause for uh, the uh, rioting that occurred. Well, Paul makes the request, hey, how do you know unless you ask? And to me, amazingly, Paul was given permission by the uh, commander. Uh, shocking to me, I would think that the commander would say, no, we've heard enough about you. This is a volatile situation. We are rolling you back. But he doesn't do that. He allows Paul the opportunity to speak. I think the reason that he did it is that he is trying to understand what are the charges that he's going to bring against Paul. What's the cause 
of this riot that, that occurred. And when he tried to find out from the Jewish people, he heard this and he heard that and one thing after another, but he needs to report to his, uh, the Roman officials what was the cause of all of this. And he has the hope that as Paul then speaks to the people, he will be able to listen in and discover, you know, what was at the core uh, of, uh, of all uh, of this. And so the permission was given. And I think that the guy was, the commander was also concerned about whether this was an isolated situation. Was this a, a, a riot that was caused by a single individual, Paul, who he is now arrested, and now the end of whatever this danger is to, for revolution in this city has been contained, or is this part of a larger plot? Are there 10 people like this, Paul? Only one way that he can find out, and that is to allow some communication to occur. You notice in verse 40, that Paul gained the full uh, attention of the people. He gestured them for silence, and uh, remember, he is at the Antonia Fortress at this point. He is, uh, has gone up several steps. He stands above the crowd, so he's looking down uh, on them. And, and, and so uh, he then began to address them, we're told, in the Hebrew language. When it talks about the Hebrew language, he did not speak Hebrew to them. Hebrew was a, a language that was only known by a relatively few people at that time. When it talks about he spoke in the Hebrew tongue, the idea is the, the common language that was spoken by Hebrews in that part of the Middle East in that day, and that is in Aramaic. So Paul begins to speak to them, not in Greek, but begins to speak to them in the common uh, man's language of Aramaic. This was uh, apparently of no help to uh, the commander because as we find out later, as a second riot kind of breaks out, he still has no idea what the problem was. Uh, the commander apparently thought Paul was going to speak in Greek, but instead in speaking in, in Aramaic, the commander didn't understand Aramaic, and so he's forced to now listen to this speech go on that he can't make heads or tails of. Paul requested in chapter 22, verse 1, that they would hear his defense. And when, again, when they heard him not speaking to them in Greek, but speaking to them in, uh, in, in Hebrew, not in, the in Aramaic, not in the language of the Greeks, but in the language of the Hebrews, what they, they realized Paul is exercising some great uh, sensitivity and consideration toward them uh, in this. And I think, uh, astonishingly, and, uh, and I'm convinced it's absolutely miraculous that when Paul begins to speak to them after calling for their silence, he calls them uh, fathers and brothers. And in other words, he addresses them politely. That would have gone a long way. But to quiet that crowd down in order to now listen to what this man is, is uh, wants to speak to them in the light of what was just going on moments before. I don't think it's anything less than a, a, a miracle of God. Now, stop the scene. Stop the movie in your mind as we kind of picture the whole thing as it's un, uh, uh, unfolding and pretend that you don't know what happens after verse 2 of chapter 22. Here is Paul, he's got everyone's attention, everyone's gone quiet, they're waiting to listen to what he's going to say. We do not know, if we put ourselves in this place, what Paul is going to say to them. And then ask yourself, what would be your best guess of what Paul would say to this religious crowd in this particular environment? This is the day that Paul has waited all 25 years since being converted into Christianity to one day stand before this crowd and deliver a single sermon to them. And here is the dream being fulfilled before him and, and his desire to speak to them concerning his faith in Jesus as uh, the Messiah. Now he has the chance to do it, and what will he say to them? Now, if I didn't know the rest of the story, I would have bet everything I owned, as feeble as that might be, 
everything that I owned, that I would have known what he would have said to them. Perhaps he would have gotten up and declared to them that the accusation that's been made against me concerning Trophimus is an absolute lie. I would never bring a Gentile into the Jewish section of the temple. And as for the accusations against me related to speaking against Moses and against circumcision and against the temple and the Jewish people and our heritage, all of that is a lie too. He might have taken that as a tract. But I would have really bet everything that I own that he would have taken the sermon in a a different area. And that is that Paul would have used the opportunity to present an absolutely airtight case for Jesus as the promised Jewish Messiah from the prophetic scriptures of the Jewish Old Testament because he had done that in synagogue after synagogue after synagogue after synagogue in sharing Jesus with the Jews, quoting from Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 3, Daniel chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 53, Psalm 22, and so forth. But what fascinates me is that Paul doesn't do that. In fact, it astonishes me that he doesn't do that. And instead, here you have this intellectual and theological giant. Instead of doing any of those other things, he proceeds to give them his testimony. He told them his salvation story, his account of how he became a Christian. And the Apostle Paul, as he stands before this crowd, he knows what they do not know yet. And that is that his life is an absolute miracle of the Holy Spirit. And he knew it to be true. And his spiritual birth was the only explanation for the man that they saw standing before them now. And so he told them the story behind what changed his life. And I think that perhaps after only the person in the ministry of Jesus Christ and then the witness of the word of God itself, that the greatest testimony to the power and the reality of Christianity in the world today is the untold millions and millions and uncountable millions of changed lives that the gospel has changed over 2,000 years, changed the lives of people from every corner of the world, across all of the broad diversity of mankind as it's represented in the world, and then to save men and women out of every conceivable addiction and sin and background and circumstances that exist in this fallen world. A testimony is a very powerful thing, and Paul knew it. And I think that perhaps my surprise at his declaring his testimony here in this setting only speaks to the fact that I have, and maybe some of us in this room as well, have at least to some degree lost sight of its power myself. Very simply... A testimony is, a Christian testimony is our salvation story. It is the story of how we came to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and then to become born again. And a testimony is made up of three very, very simple things. Number one, a description of who we were and what we were like before we ever became Christians. And then number two, how my life came into contact with the gospel, how my life came into contact uh, with the truth of salvation found in Jesus, and then how I put my trust in him for salvation. And then number three, what my life has now become as a result of that being born again, that spiritual uh, birth. There's a sense in which every single Christian has exactly the same testimony in that every Christian's testimony is made up of all three of these things. But there's another sense 
in which no two testimonies are ever the same. They are as unique and individual as our fingerprints. They are different in terms of the circumstances related to our conversion, what age we were, what part of the world were we in, the particular circumstances of our life at that time. Some people come to God from a mountaintop experience when that mountaintop experience disappoints them. Other come to God and trust and become Christians in the deepest valleys of life. And people come to God and they come to trust in Jesus in circumstances everywhere in between those two extremes. And so the place where it happened, how we heard the gospel, what the other person was that was involved, who shared the gospel with me, who prayed with me to receive Christ, these are a part of all of our testimonies, but it's not always the same place, it's not always the same uh, person, and so forth. And each of our testimonies as a result is utterly unique in human history. And this is one of the reasons that we never tie tire as Christians of hearing another person's testimony or their salvation story, though we have our own, because it is exactly like ours uh, fundamentally, but it is so unlike ours in other ways. And always to hear that story, the uniqueness of the circumstances, the situations, what God did, it always inspires us to hear that story from another person's life. And so Paul gave them his testimony as it's recorded there in verses 3 through 21. We won't examine it with any kind of depth this morning because we did so when we studied Acts chapter 9 when the event occurred in the Apostle Paul's life. But we do want to notice uh, how it breaks up as Paul lays it out here. I mean, who and what he was before he became a Christian, he describes all of that in verses 1 through 5. And essentially what he's declaring to this mob is, I'm exactly like you, or I was exactly uh, like you. I used to be a person who had rejected Jesus out of hand without knowing anything about him and without ever going to the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament to discover whether he matched that description or not. And when he declares himself in verse 3 to be a Jew and then born in the city of Tarsus in uh, Cilicia, further in verse 3, that he was brought up and raised in this city, in the city of Jerusalem. In other words, he's saying to them, I'm not some Hellenistic Jew, some Grecian Jew that was raised out in some kind of a a Gentile uh, area and And here I am getting myself into trouble because of ignorance related to the customs of this city. I know what I'm doing here. He declared himself, verse 3, to have received his religious training from none other than the rabbi Gamaliel, the most highly esteemed rabbi in Paul's uh, day renowned in Jewish history even to this day. Gamaliel had only died five years earlier. And when Paul mentions Gamaliel's name, he has everybody's attention in that crowd because even among that very, very religious crowd, it was a comparative few in that crowd who had ever had the privilege of receiving religious education at the feet of Gamaliel. Very few people could boast, as Paul was able to do here, or claim uh, that kind of an honor. He declared in verse 3 that he had been taught according to the strictness of our Father's law. Under Gamaliel, Paul had been taught the law strictly. He wasn't a product of liberal theology. He embraced every demand of the law of Moses. He embraced all of the demands of the prophets and all of their fullness. That was his religious training, his background. He said in verse 3, I understand religious zeal. I don't have a lukewarm bone in my body concerning these things. And then in verses 4 and 5, he declared to them how he had persecuted Christians to the point of death. And when he's looking out on this crowd and he is declaring this, 
He begins to get eye contact with people who know everything that he's saying is true. He said, the high priest can tell you that this is true. The members of the Sanhedrin who are present here, they can tell you that all of this was true. And in all of this, Paul was declaring to them that there was a time, he's saying, when I was exactly as you are today. And they believed me. They were tracking with him. They knew what he was saying. But the question in their mind, and it's the same question that fills the minds who are still living the life we once lived when we tell them our testimony, when you come out of some kind of something in terms of life, and you say, this was my background, this was my worldview, this is how I saw things, and then you are talking to someone or a crowd who is still completely mired in that background or in that philosophy or in that worldview, but this is why I came out of it and this is how I came out of it, Everyone that's listening to it and is paying attention recognizes there is something lacking. They sense something lacking in the situation that I'm content in, and they found a need to leave it. And everyone understood what Paul was saying, and they understand it when we give our testimony today in the same uh, regard. And so they're thinking in their mind, the question that fills their, uh, their mind is, what was wrong with who you were? What was wrong with the life that you were living way back when? Why did you feel the need to change? Who or what changed you? And so Paul then proceeded to tell them the circumstances surrounding his coming to trust in Jesus as his Savior in verses 6 through 13. And everything about that is essentially is centered on upon a personal contact with a risen, living Jesus Christ and, and evidence that Jesus was not as all of them believe or as Paul had previously believed, dead in a grave or his, his body had been stolen away. Paul declares that he was saved and changed by a personal encounter with Jesus himself. And for Paul, that introduction to Jesus occurred when Jesus himself knocked Paul off of his high horse, so to speak, as he's traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus to make havoc of the church in Damascus that he had already done in Jerusalem. And while he's intent upon doing this, Jesus comes on the scene and blinds him and humbles him on his journey to Damascus, and then he revealed himself to Paul, at which point Paul then made Jesus the Lord of his life. He declares in this testimony that he's speaking to them, he then declared Jesus to be Lord twice. Who are you, Lord? And Paul was declaring that as a result of this experience with Jesus, the man who began that journey to Damascus, the man who left Jerusalem so many years ago that you used to know, and the man who ultimately walked blinded into the city of Damascus were two entirely different men. The man who left Jerusalem no longer exists, and a completely different man entered into the city of Damascus, and he declared himself to this crowd to essentially be a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, in verses 14 to 21, Paul declared to them what his life had uh, become after his conversion, and that now he was giving his life completely, fully to the call of God upon his life, and his particular call on Paul's life was then to evangelize, not supremely the Jews, but the Gentiles. But Paul was declaring to them, you want to know what my life has been ever since I came to know Christ? My life is completely spent upon obeying his commandments in his word and then obeying whatever his plan is for my life. That is what is the most important thing for me now. And the life that I now live is the byproduct. What you see, the change that you see, is because of the spiritual birth, but my priorities have changed. 
Obeying God's good commandments is most important to me now. And then taking no longer my desire to be great in any environment, religious or otherwise. My sole desire is what is your plan for my life, God? And I want to do that. And he said, since that encounter with Jesus, that's exactly how I've been spending my life. And then when the crowd heard Paul uh, speak of the Gentiles in verse 21, uh, they went ballistic. But that's, uh, we'll look at that in another story, in another sermon, uh, perhaps. I'd like to just close this morning with a a couple of very brief observations, uh, having laid this foundation concerning our testimonies that we possess, our individual testimony as Christians. I think it is very, very good to be reminded of the absolute miracle that each of our lives are as Christians, to stop and to consider all of the things that God did in your life and in my life, B.C., before Christ, just to keep us alive in the face of our stupidity and our dumb decisions so that we could even one day hear the gospel from someone and be saved. And how we can look back and see how for long years he not only protected us to hear that gospel, but he prepared us to one day hear that gospel. And then the supernatural life that he gave to that truth of the gospel, when we heard it, that offer of salvation, and then to realize this is the truth of the God who has made me, and then to put my faith in Jesus and to receive that salvation, and the importance of remembering our story for ourselves. I think that very often when people who are not yet Christians, very often when they see us now as Christians, like, like the, and they see us now like the delivered demoniac, that Jesus delivered in uh, Gadara. Here we are, we're seated, we're clothed, we're in our right mind, and they assume that it's always been true of us. And what they do is they look at our lives as Christians, and they look at a room of people who are Christians in, in a place like this, and what they don't realize is what they see is what God has made us into. They have no idea what we once were, They have no idea that we have not always been this person. And they can come to think that we have never tasted difficulty in life. We have never tasted uh, the world, that somehow we've become Christians out of an ignorance concerning all of the sin that's available in the world, all of the experiences that a person can have out there. The only reason that anybody would be a Christian or come into a room like this has to be that they're ignorant of the options that are out there, or they have some kind of a God gene or something like that, and that if we only knew what was going on out there and available to us, we would abandon all of this in an instant to then go be a part of that. And what they do not realize, and you may not realize, is that most of us became Christians precisely because we had a very long experience with the world and the flesh and the devil. And it was out of that very long experience with that unholy uh, trinity that caused us to become uh, Christians uh, ultimately. I think of a man who once attended this church uh, many, many years ago, and he's been in heaven for many years now. And to look at him, if you were to walk into Calvary Chapel in those days and you would see him sitting, you would, universally, we would look at him and say, what a nice, sweet old man. And what people didn't realize was true of him, true of every Christian, is that that nice, sweet old man is what God made him into. Earlier in his life, he had been an extraordinary, very, very talented, accomplished writer and poet. He had even been invited to recite his poetry at Carnegie Hall, one of the most astonishing uh, invitations that an artist can receive of any kind. 
But in the course of all of this acclaim, all this notoriety and all, and then out of a desire to broaden his life experience as an artist, to broaden his, you know, his consciousness and to enhance his, his artist, artistic expression and so forth, he began to dabble in drugs and he ended up a heroin addict and he remained so until he became a Christian. And God delivered him from it and made a miracle of his life. But you would never know the story looking at him. Even those Christians who have been saved from an early age, as Josh Ehrlich shared in, uh, in our night related to the Lord's Supper a couple of weeks ago, he described his conversion as a high, scare, uh, a high chair conversion. I thought that was terrific. Come to know the Lord before he knew he came to know the Lord. There's a lot of people that get saved that, uh, that way. But those kind of people, they come to know what miracles they are, but they do it from a different angle. Because it's as they grow older and they begin to deal with the strength of the attractiveness to their flesh, of the world, of the flesh, of the devil, of sin... And they begin to experience the power of all of that pull. They come to realize the person that those things would have made them into if God had not saved them at an earlier age. Everyone, whether saved young in life or saved later in life, with whatever exposure there is to sin, whether from the vantage point of being a Christian or being a non-Christian, ultimately all of us are equally thankful for our testimony. I want you to note a second here that Paul, concerning Paul, that we notice that not all testimonies are about coming out of the lifestyle of a hell's angel or out of a, a sex, drugs, and rock and roll kind of, uh, of a testimony. Here you have a testimony of man who was saved out of religion. He was saved out of a deeply religious background, but a religious background that was badly, badly erroneous and misguided. And the fact of the matter is today... Uh, the overwhelming majority of the world that we live in today are not atheists. They are not even secularists. The overwhelming majority of the population of the world today is religious. And the majority of people who will come and put their faith in Jesus for salvation around the world today, they will do it, as Paul did here, not from a secular background, but from a religious background and from a religious heritage. Religion cannot save. And much of the religion as it is in the world today is completely wrong. They're incompatible. Not everybody can be true in this in this way, and they're wrong about the most important thing in life, and that is how to be forgiven of our sins and to begin a personal relationship with God. Remember, it was to a deeply religious man by the name of Nicodemus that Jesus declared, verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It is the, the issue is not whether I, concerning salvation is not whether I am religious. It isn't even whether I believe in God. The question is, have I been born again? Have I recognized my need for salvation as a sinner? Have I recognized Jesus as God's provision for the need of the, of, for the forgiveness uh, of sins? And have I trusted in Jesus and received that miracle of the Holy Spirit coming into my life? Number three, and I close with this. I think this teaches us that it's good to be reminded of the value of our, our personal testimony related to our personal evangelism of family members, of friends, of peers, neighbors, and so forth. For each one of us as Christians to be like Paul in this passage, and that is to be ready when the opportunity arises to share our testimony. And you don't need 30 minutes to do it. You don't need 10 minutes to do it. You don't even need five minutes uh, to do it. 
I am regularly in conversations with people when I'm only able to give a sentence or two of, of my testimony uh, to them, and they hardly even know that it's my testimony. So someone comes up to me or we're in some kind of a conversation and they're talking about how awful the world is and uh, this is a common conversation, right, today, <laughs> you know, how awful the, awful the world is, what's the meaning of life and all. And I just candidly say, you know, I looked a lot of places. I think I was fairly exhaustive in my search. And, but I simply cannot make any sense of the world that goes on all around me every single day, apart from the first three chapters of the book of Genesis that talk about the creation of man, the fall of man, and the redemption of mankind. And I'll talk about in the relationship to creation, about how we have been created for a relationship with God and that nothing will ever bring satisfaction in our lives ultimately until we are engaged in the very thing that we have been created for and that there will always be the sense that there must be something more to life until I'm involved in that relationship with God that I've been created for, because until I'm in that relationship with God, there is something more that I haven't experienced, and it's the most important thing in life of all. And that the world, individual lives, the person that I'm talking to here, uh, myself, it is all a mess because we are fallen and we are in need of being saved out of that condition, and then that God has provided us a Savior and salvation in Jesus. And I can say that in 90 seconds, and then see where it goes with the person. I, sometimes it's a glazed look. Sometimes it just begins a, 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 a further uh, discussion. Now, when I give my testimony, I, personally, I don't talk about uh, my Hell's Angels days simply because I didn't have any Hell's Angels days. So I don't talk about being saved out of a drug addiction or out of uh, uh, drunkenness or anything like that simply because that's not my testimony. That's not what brought me uh, to Christ. If that's your testimony, then you share that. And I mean speak about uh, the, the power of God to change your life and how God saved you out of that condition. That's a very powerful testimony in a world and in a culture that is becoming more and more hopelessly addicted by the day. But I talk about being saved out of the emptiness and the meaninglessness of life apart from God because that's what brought me to uh, God. And, and uh, I, when I got saved, I had a great job, I had a great wife, I had two children, I had two cars both paid for. Listen, they weren't... Uh, you know, Range Rovers, but they were two cars that were paid for. And Karen and I lived in this city, and we had already sold a starter home and had jumped up into the house of our dreams. Everything that I could have dreamed would bring satisfaction in my life. And I remember talking with her one evening in the driveway of, of that house, and I spoke to her, and I said, I said, if all of these things have not brought me satisfaction and fulfillment, then I know that upgrading them the rest of my life will not do that. I'm going back to church. And that was my way of saying, I'm going back to uh, continue my search uh, in uh, God. A few day, days ago, I was talking with an old high school buddy. I hadn't seen him in 44 years. And, uh, and we wanted to get caught up with each other and so forth and talking about life. And I listened to, you know, what's been going on with him. And he asked what was going on related to my life. And I told him that I was a Christian and, you know, how that happened. And, and the discussion was going on and all. And, and, I, and, I, and somehow it came around. I said, you know, I said, I, God just did not make me to ever live under the motto or the philosophy of uh, let's eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. I, I, can't, I, can't, uh, I can't pour myself into that. I say the way God made me is I can never enjoy the micro of life, the daily of life, without understanding the macro of life. 
And so I said, Dave, I began to try to address this, the, the big questions in life. Like, how did we get here? Why are we here? What's the meaning and the purpose of life? Why is the world in the mess that it's in? Why does death exist in human history? What happens when we die? Do we need to be prepared uh, for death? And I told him, I said, nothing so satisfies those questions for me in my search than the revelation that's found in the Bible. And I told him, I trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. I've been born again by the Holy Spirit. It's a miracle that's available to you. And, and uh, I have been satisfied deeply spiritually ever uh, since. And sometimes I'll ask a person in this way. Now, what have you done with those great questions in life? I'm interested. Did you find an, a better answer to those questions than, than I found? And because I'm not just preaching at them. Tell, tell me where. But I find 99% out of, 99 out of 100 people simply do not give those questions any thought at all today. But if they have, I'm not threatened by it. I'm, I'm not afraid that they will surface something in terms of a philosophy or a belief in life that is superior to what I have found in the Bible. And so the discussion uh, begins, and it all begins launched by our salvation story. And to say something like these things to people, they may walk away, they may disagree or whatever, they may think all of it's nonsense, but it has planted a seed now, and they're going to think now about, yeah, there are big questions in life, and now suddenly I can't enjoy the micro of my life without the answer to the macro questions in life. Thanks a lot, Damien, for doing that to me and ruining my life. And then the Holy Spirit is off and running. Again, it only takes a couple minutes to say, and people will listen to it as they listen to Paul because it's your story, and people like stories. They won't want the one-hour version, but they will take the two-minute version. And the interesting thing about a testimony is it's virtually unassailable because it's the one thing in life concerning you that you alone are the undisputed expert on. No one knows more about that story than you do. And I think it's good to realize as well that your salvation story is a, the, the story of an amazing miracle, and it's unlike anyone else's in the world. It is priceless. It is powerful. And we learn from the passage here today, it is meant to be shared with others. It is simply the most non-threatening way to share the gospel with another human being. You don't have to even speak to them. I do this as, as well, and I have no problem with it. But to lay the case for the fact that they are sinners and in need of a Savior and so forth, that's a wonderful ro the Romans road. All of that is great. But as you simply lay out your testimony for why you left where they are and how you got out of there through the gospel and into the quality of life that you're involved in, all of those things are being planted within their heart in some, at least some kind of germ form. And to share this with them, nobody is usually threatened at all by a testimony. And I think the passage teaches us, at least I exhort myself related to it, for us to look for opportunities to share our testimonies. Not, we don't always have the opportunity to do it in whole. We can do that with family members or people that really care about us. But sometimes at a bus stop or in some place or this or that, or at a lunch table or something, we can just get one or two minutes worth out of it and just leave something uh, with them. But how, whatever the circumstances allow, the importance for us of developing a 10-minute version or a 5-minute version or a 2-minute version, a 90-second version, and, and to really do it. So if I had 90 seconds to say how it is that God did this thing in my life and then to develop that 
and then to pray and ask for opportunities to share it, and then the opportunities will come to share who and what you once were, how you came to trust in Jesus, and then what he has done in your life since. Jesus himself is a massive uh, believer in the power of testimony. Mark's gospel records where Jesus went, as I mentioned earlier, the demoniac at Gadara. His name is Legion. He's a demon possessed by perhaps as many as 6,000 demons. And Jesus cast the demon out of him, and the first time in we don't know how many months or years in his life, he sat down before Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and he pleaded with Jesus, would you let me now follow you on your journey to go where you're going? And Jesus then spoke to uh, the man who had just been dramatically transformed uh, by the Lord. Jesus would not permit him to follow him on his journey and instead said, you go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. In other words, go home to the people who knew what you once were, wherever that is in life, very familiar with your former condition, and then let them see how changed your life is, and then give them the explanation for how that change occurred and how God had compassion upon you. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, I want you to know that a great miracle of God awaits you this morning by simply trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, the great miracle that he is eager to perform within you. And there will be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service who would love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God that you've been created for and without which nothing else in life can satisfy and without which nothing else in life will make sense. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you from this little place on planet Earth, 4300 American Avenue, and as a body of your people, we say thank you for our testimony. Thank you for our salvation story, Lord. Thank you for how you were at work in our life long before we could ever see the fingerprints of it. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't let us die or you didn't let us go wholly on our own way before uh, and destroy ourselves ultimately, but you kept us alive in many cases for the day that we would one day hear, Father, your invitation of salvation and forgiveness found in your Son, and then you did that miracle of giving your revelation and giving your uh, amen to it in our hearts so that we knew it was our Creator speaking to us. And we thank you, Lord, not only for the life that you delivered us out of and all of that, but we thank you for the incredible privilege of being able to live the life that you have now saved us into. We pinch ourselves for our testimony, for our salvation story. We bless you this morning for it. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us individually as we see the power of a testimony here in Paul's life, as Jesus, you spoke about it. And we pray that you would help each one of us to develop a two-minute version of that. And then, Lord, in the coming week or two, that you would give us some kind of an opportunity in which to share something from that experience with you into someone's life that we're talking to, and then for you to make much of it in their lives in the same way that you once did in our lives. We pray that you would give us that witness of your spirit when you give us that opportunity, and then you would give us, Lord, the boldness to step into that opportunity until our testimony is a regular part, Lord, of what we use in talking with people and pointing them to you. We pray this, Lord, thankful that our prayer has gone to you in heaven. We thank you that it is in line with your will for our lives and that you're going to accomplish it in our lives as well. 
And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.